Well, I do want to tell you that it's a joy for me to be here before you once again and with the responsibility of expounding God's Word. I, I only get this privilege about four to six weeks, I mean, four, every four to six weeks, and uh, it's, it's a precious thing for me uh, to do. And as I was preparing the sermon earlier this week, it just hit me that over the course of the series in Hebrews, over over these last few weeks as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, I have preached all the warning passages. In fact, there are five warnings in the book of Hebrews, and I have preached three, and today we find ourselves in the fourth warning. So I'm, I'm a little scared. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if as soon as you guys see me coming up the pulpit, you, your minds start running perhaps, saying something like, Oh no, it's the fire and brimstone preacher again. I mean, Al preaches all the promises and blessings. Jose preaches all the warnings and judgments. But I want to assure the Sovereign Grace Church Plant team that this will not always be the case. But putting all joking aside, church, I want to assure you this morning that these passages which compose the strongest warning in the book of Hebrews are also some of the most encouraging words you will ever read in the pages of Scripture. So let's read our text this morning. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, And will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we come to this sobering passage of Scripture. 
And Lord, we come as those who have no other means to draw near to you. but the precious blood of Christ. Father, that is where our confidence lays on the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us see him even greater. That you would help us, Father, be encouraged to draw near to you and to hold fast our confession of faith and to encourage one another in love and good works. Father, help us. We are weak. We are sinful. Help us, Lord, this morning, I pray. Amen. Amen. Now, I recently read a, move, uh, a very moving story. In fact, it was a story of a terrifying experience of a young boy who was stuck in a house engulfed in flames. And uh, the story was something like it, 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 was a, it was a dry summer night and his house caught fire and this young boy was forced to flee to the roof of the house. Now his parents were in the bottom floor that's where they slept, and so they were able to get out of the house in time uh, before the fire actually uh, uh, closed the doors. So what his father did is his father, once after escaping, he stood on the ground below with outstretched arms calling to his son, Jump! I'll catch you. See, the father knew that the only way that his son would be saved was by jumping off the roof. But as the boy looked down, all the boy could see were flames and smoke and darkness. And so as you can imagine, he was afraid to jump off the roof. So he, he started protesting back to his father. He said, Daddy, Daddy, I can't see you. But the father replied, but I can see you. Jump. So the boy jumped and fell into the saving hands of his loving father. And church, our Christian lives are much like this experience. You see, we are burdened and blinded by the enemies of our souls. The world around us, our hearts, the flesh inside of us, and Satan. And God our Father calls us to jump into, into the all-satisfying, life-transforming Saving nail pierced hands of our Savior. And that's what this whole epistle has been about. God, through the book of Hebrews, is calling both the original audience and all of us today to jump. Do not go back into the burning house. You will perish if you do. Now, in the case of the original audience, going back into the burning house meant rejecting Christ. And going back to the perishing system of Judaism. But trusting Christ meant facing the flames of public reproach. It meant facing the blinding smoke of a life of suffering and persecu for persecution. 
It meant trusting the unseen safety while enduring the visible danger. And as 21st century Christians in America, we do not face this type of suffering and persecution that the original audience experienced. None of us are facing public beatings. None of us are facing imprisonments due to our faith or the confiscation of homes due to Christ. But nevertheless, our hearts are no different than theirs and temptations come to us in different forms, but they, are, they all have one goal in mind, rejecting Christ. And the author has labored for 10 chapters showing us the superiority of Christ. And after giving us this wonderful exposition of the superiority of Christ and his salvation, he culminates his message by exhorting us to respond to the sacrifice of Christ and his priestly work by doing three things. You guys remember those three things last week? He's calling us to approach God faithfully. He's calling us to maintain firm in our confession without wavering. He's calling us to encourage one another in love and good works. And the reason why the writer is exhorting his audience to respond in these ways is because they were being tempted to do the very opposite. They were being tempted to draw back instead of drawing near. They were being tempted or shrinking back. That's what verse 39 tells us. You see, instead of drawing near in full assurance of faith, they failed to draw near and doubted the sufficiency of the work of Christ. Instead of holding fast to their original confession without wavering, they were tempted to waver on their confession, and some of them were even renouncing it altogether. Instead of finding ways of encouraging one another in unity, they were being tempted to neglect meeting together and growing in love and good works. They were like the young boy on top of the roof, blinded by flames and the smoke, in danger of perishing in the fire. In church, we are no different. We stand in the roof of our lives looking at flames and smoke all around us and we hear the voice of God that calls us to jump. Draw near to me in fullness of faith on the basis of my son's sacrifice. God calls us to jump. Hold fast the confession of your hope. God calls us to jump. Encourage one another to love and good works. Now, are we going to trust the call of the Father? Or are we going to reject it? And this is the issue the writer is trying to address. There are only two responses to the superiority of Christ. We either believe in fullness of faith and jump, or we fail to believe and we perish. There is no third or fourth choice. There is no in-between. So as we come to these verses... May we hear the call of a loving father this morning whose heart for us is that we would experience his salvation. May we draw near to God this morning and set our ears to hear his voice even though the darkness and the flames that tempt us to doubt God are right before us. And if we do this, you know what we will hear? This is what we're going to hear in this text. We are going to hear the voice of our Father say to us, endure in faith.
with confidence. Endure in faith with confidence. This is the main point of our text, that we would not shrink back into destruction, but that we would live by faith, that in the midst of sin, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, we would endure in faith with confidence. So the author is going to walk us through the text and introduce us to two kinds of people. Those who fail to endure, that is our first point, and those who endure in faith, that is our second point. So let's meet the first group, those who fail to endure. Look with me to verses 26 and 27. He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, we have to be careful here, okay? It is necessary for us to take a careful look at these two verses because many well-meaning preachers to exhort their congregations have used these verses and in not carefully considering the immediate and broader context in which these passages find themselves have perhaps unintentionally brought much spiritual anguish to the hearts of the hearers. And we want to labor strongly against that, but at the same time, we don't want to silence the warning for all of us in these verses. And the warning, as we have read it, starts by describing that there are individuals within the professing community who are receiving the knowledge of the truth. And go on sinning deliberately. And because of their deliberate sin, there no longer remains a sacrifice for their sins. But we can't just read the warning without working hard to define what sinning deliberately means. Is the author actually saying that if we continue to sin deliberately in the general sense, after receiving the gospel there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Is he saying that? Let me ask you something. Do, do any of us sin continually? If you answer no, you are deliberately lying. You see, reality is we are all sinners by nature. The apostle Paul described himself as the chief of sinners. When we lie or when we lust or when we hurt others with our angry words, are we not deliberately, willfully, and intentionally continuing to sin? All of us have continual areas of sin. And none of us sin without the will to do so. So to think otherwise is to be deliberately self-righteous. So what is the author Addressing. If he is not addressing sin in general, what is the sin that is being addressed? And so I believe that the sin that is being addressed is the rejection of the truth. And so what we see is that those who fail to endure reject the truth. This is what those who fail to endure are guilty of. We need to understand that Within the context of the whole book, the author is laboring to set Christ as the superior word. 
the superior message, the superior priest who has a better covenant, who has a superior sacrifice. Everything he has just exhorted them to do in the immediate previous verses that Al expounded last week is the appropriate response to the message of the truth. Christ. But there are those who continually and deliberately sin against the truth. They have heard the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of Christ alone. Yet, they explicitly reject the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. This is basically a person who has made a profession of faith in Christ, and yet, who at some point has decided that the work of Christ is not necessary for them in order to enjoy fellowship with God. They have turned their back on Christ and returned to some other form of religion in approaching God and fellowship. You see, the issue with those who fail to endure is not that they continue and struggle with sin, or even that they have a besetting sin of some kind. The issue is they have no faith. They don't see Christ for who he is. And because they don't see Christ for who he is, they are rejecting not only Christ, but they are rejecting the only sacrifice for sins. And so those who fail to endure, reject the truth. And in doing so, they reject the sacrifice for sins. Look at verse 26 again. He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The author of Hebrews is saying here that if the person willfully and knowingly rejects the one real sacrifice for sins, then of course there is no other sacrifice for sin that person can turn to. If you have rejected the only sacrifice that there is for sin, where then would you go in order to get forgiveness of your sins? This is the issue, the issue with other religions. If you ever speak to a Muslim, just ask him, do you sin? He's going to say yes. So where do you go for the forgiveness of your sins? And the point of the Hebrew author is, there's nowhere you can go but Christ. Remember, he is writing to a congregation that is made up of Hebrew Christians who are wavering in their faith. Some are tempted to draw back instead of drawing near. And some are even neglecting to meet together. So the author of Hebrews sends out a stern warning to them saying, Look, if you reject Christ, who you publicly profess, there is nowhere else to turn for forgiveness of sin. He has already made the point in Hebrews 9 and in Hebrews 10 earlier in this chapter that the blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sins and that only Jesus' sacrifice forgives sins. So if anyone in, in, in their mind is trying to turn back to Judaism, they're turning back to a system who cannot forgive sins. This is a stern warning for anyone also, in this auditorium, that is tempted to reject Jesus and the sacrifice that he offers. My friend, 
if this is you, I plead you to embrace the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. I plead you to jump off the burning roof of your spiritual status before God and into the hands of a merciful Savior. I plead you. You know why? Because those who fail to endure will receive merciless judgment. That's what we see in this text. We see that those who, those who fail to endure reject the truth. We see that they reject the sacrifice for sins, and then we see that they receive merciless judgment. This is what awaits them. Look at verse 27 with me. It says, but a fearful expectation of judgment. In other words, there is no sacrifice for sin. You know what there is? There is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Church, we will all face judgment one day. In fact, the very writer of this letter told us that in Hebrews 9 verse 27. But only those who endure through faith in Christ have hope for mercy and eternal life. But those who have rejected Christ and failed to endure in their profession have only a fearful expectation of eternal judgment stored up for those who are God's adversaries. Now, many people in this generation, including those who profess faith in, in Christ, would have a view of God that ignores God as judge. They emphasize that God is love, as if God judging sinners somehow contradicts his love. My friends, God would cease to be a loving God if he was not a just judge. I mean, I want you to, to imagine this with me, okay? Imagine someone coming into your home and murdering your entire family. And once he is captured and taken to trial, the judge would just set the criminal free with no retribution for their actions. How loving would that be? It would not be love for you in the midst of your loss. It would not be love for the criminal to allow him to persist in his evil. It would not be love for the rest of the human race who is at danger of the same actions. But in our spiritual blindness, we desire a loving God as long as he judges the wrong of others and not mine. But the God of the Bible is a just judge and he will consume his adversaries. He is not just a little bit angry. He's a fury of fire which means he is passionate with fury. One day, justice will be done, and holy anger will be satisfied. And just to remind his Hebrew audience of this truth, he reminds them of the penalty for the willful sin of idolatry in the Old Covenant. Look at verse 28. He says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is what he is saying to them. This is what he's saying to them. Do you guys, do you guys remember the passage in Deuteronomy which speaks of the penalty of sin, of idolatry? You guys remember. You guys remember your dad reading that passage to you? Now tell me, what is supposed to happen when a person commits idolatry? What did Moses say? 
Well, Moses told us that if you commit idolatry and two or more witnesses witness to the fact that you have participated in idolatry, what is it to happen? You are to be stoned to death. So if Moses said this regarding the law, verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think would be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? That is his argument. He is saying, if you think that was, that was appropriate penalty for someone who committed idolatry against the one true God in the time of Moses, what do you think will be the penalty for those who trample underfoot the blood of the Son of God? But my friends, these verses once again strengthen the fact that he is not talking of sin in general, but of, of particular sin, the sin of rejecting the person of Jesus and his work of salvation. He is describing those who fail to endure in faith. And in fact, verse 29, he describes their actions. Let's look at verse 29 really quick. He says, first thing he says is they have spurned the son of God. In other words, this is what he's saying. You see, he's saying the Son of God laid his life down for them to receive as their substitute. And instead of receiving him as their life and hope, they paused, got some religion, and then they stepped on him and went to, better, to other things. Then he says they profaned the blood of the covenant. This is really what he's saying. They regarded it as common, ordinary, nothing special, not sacred or precious, they drank the cup of the new covenant and said, nice juice, and went away and stayed in their rebellion. And lastly, he says at the end, they outraged the spirit of grace. In other words, they tasted the grace of God in their lives. They were influenced by it in some small measure, but then they began to turn away to blaspheme the very spirit of grace. And so he's saying, for these people... God is a consuming fire. He will avenge and repay according to their deeds. Nothing gets by him. Vengeance belongs to him. He will repay. He is reminding us that at the final judgment, that awesome judgment of God, it, God is not going to miss anything. Especially, he's not going to miss the rejection of his son. If he gave his son to die, he apparently thought it was the utmost importance and the only way that we could be saved. And if we despise that death, the author of Hebrews is just saying to us, what in the world will it be like to fall into the hands of the living God? Now, you might be saying, Jose, you told us in the introduction that these were some of the most encouraging verses in Scripture. <clears throat> but so far, this has been a strong word to hear. And I know it has been a very sobering word to hear, but I want you to consider that the warning in these verses comes from the very heart of a loving father. His point is not to blast idolaters or to blast those who have already forsaken Christ. His point is not to intimidate Christians into submission. But he is much like the loving father calling his young son to jump into his arms. His goal is to warn, 
and encourage his children not to defect from their loyalty to Jesus Christ and to run back into the burning house of Judaism, but to trust him in the midst of blinding suffering. The very warning itself is a means for us to endure in faith. So, what does it look like to endure in faith? Well, the writer, transi the writer transitions quickly to show us what those who endure in faith look like. So point number two, those who endure in faith. In faith. Now, the very first thing the text shows us is that those who endure in faith remember God's faithfulness. Look at verses 32 through 34. Let, let us read. He says, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You see, he calls on them to remember and to reflect upon some of the things they had suffered through shortly after coming to Christ. They endured hard struggles and suffering with love, joy, hope, and faith. And so the whole point of remembering these former days was not to remember their faithfulness, but so they could recall and remember God's faithfulness. He wants them to find assurance of the genuineness of their faith by contemplating the way God has worked in them and through them, not in the prospering of their lives, but in the presence of many trials. So much for prosperity gospel, right? So much for the contemporary American evangelical thinking that things should always go well for us. Being a good Christian and enjoying a comfortable life are often thought to go hand in hand to the point that when things start to go bad, we struggle with understanding the very possibility of such a turn of events. But what this Hebrew author is teaching us is that in the presence of many trials, we are able to see the faithfulness of God that enables us to endure And in doing so, it strengthens our faith. I saw this, I saw this this week with my brother, Jose La Guardia. And he, he's allowing me to share this with you guys. Okay? And uh, over the last two months, Jose and Teddy have been facing numerous trials. In fact, just over two months ago, Jose was diagnosed with a serious heart condition a condition that calls for an immediate heart surgery to fix a malfunctioning valve that is only allowing his heart to function 65% in capacity. And a few weeks after the diagnosis and days away from his surgery, his employer let him know that another company had bought out the place where he worked and that he no longer had a job. In hoping to sign up for that COBRA insurance, To be able to pay for his operation, he calls the insurance company just to hear the surprising news that his old job's coverage relapsed and they never renewed the policy. So throughout these last weeks, we have tried different means such as Medicaid to see if, if we could find a way to get this procedure done. But all 
we received were denial letters. My friends, throughout this whole time, Jose has trusted his Savior. In the midst of all these trials, with prayer in his lips, he has said to me, God sustains me and he sustains my heart. I will not despair, but I will have faith in him. And this Thursday night, as I was working on the sermon, he called me to inform me that the heart surgeon who had diagnosed him called him to tell him that he was willing to operate him and have Jose pay him $100 a month to cover the cost. We rejoice in the goodness of God and in his faithfulness towards his children. I know that as Jose looks to the operation ahead and as he looks to his recovery to come and as he looks to the future search for employment, he will be able to look back and see how God has been faithful to him and his faith is that much stronger because of it. And this is the case for all of us, my friends. Our faith grows and is strengthening as we spend time remembering the faithfulness of God to help us endure in faith. Twice in this letter, the author has reminded us of God's promise to put his law in our minds and write them in our hearts. And the very evidence that this is what God has done in us is the way we endure in the faith. There is fullness of assurance that comes to my heart, guys, in the midst of my sin and in the midst of my struggles and in the midst of my suffering. And I'm able to look back at the faithfulness of God in my life. I feel like I can run through walls of condemnation. I feel like I can run through walls of insecurities and walls of struggles and trials when I'm reminded of what God promised and I look back to see that indeed He has delivered on His promise in the worst of times. That's why James tells us to count it all joy when facing various trials. How else would we grow in our faith if not through the purifying of God's furnace? For this reason, the author of Hebrews says, remember those early days. After you professed that you were a believer in Jesus Christ, you went through incredible persecution. Some of you were thrown in prison, went to visit your brothers and sisters when you were in prison for their profession of faith. You ministered to them. You shared in their suffering. You shared in their shame. And so he says to them, I want you to remember that because that was a very trying time. And even though it was a very trying time, what did you do? You endured. You persevered. You didn't fall away from Christ when the heat was turned on. You stayed faithful to him, he says. These Hebrew Christians were having their own family members say to them, turn back. You can, you can come back to be a Jew and you can have the same benefits you have as a Christian and you don't have to suffer. But in the midst of all that, they could remember. They could look back, even through their suffering. God was in their midst and God was sustaining them. 
And he says this to them. He says, you can endure in the faith because you have a better possession, an abiding one. So once again, he encourages us by reminding us that God's gift of salvation in Christ is an abiding one. So based on the remembrance of the outcome of the past, the author then exhorts his readers to continue in that same course. And he tells him this in verses 35 and 36. He says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You see, this reward comes to those who accomplish God's will by enduring in their faith. And so, he is showing us that those who endure in the faith remember God's faithfulness. But he's also showing us that those who endure in the faith remain in God's will. The writer shows us that the endurance leads to doing the will of God. Our confidence is a state of mind that leads to an active obedience. In fact, this is what we're about to dive into the next four weeks as we slow down through the 11th chapter of the book, often called the Hall of Faith chapter, for it lists multiple Old Testament individuals reowned for their lives of faithfulness. But before we get to the Hall of Faith, okay, I want us to consider what remaining in the will of God looks like in light of the immediate context of this text. Now, we learned that the warning of verse 26 is not to continue to sin deliberately against the truth. And we learned that contextually, the author isn't thinking here of just any sin. He's thinking especially of the sin of returning to Judaism, the sacrificial system. Rejecting the gospel, rejecting the gospel of truth, of justification by grace alone, through faith alone in the substitution atoning sacrifice of Christ alone. And going back to the old sacrifices in the temple. That was the temptation that these first century Christians were dealing with. And even though we don't, we don't have Judaism to go back to, guys, but we do have the same temptation. We do have the same temptation to doubt the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. And we do this by trying to atone for our sins ourselves. And so to remain in God's will is to remain believing that only by the blood of Jesus we have forgiveness of sin. Only by the blood of Jesus we have full assurance of faith. Only by the blood of Jesus we are able to draw near to God. Remaining in God's will is not sinless perfection. It is not the absence of sin in our lives, but the very presence of a Savior. It is remembering the faithfulness of God hanging nailed to a wooden cross so that in our time of struggle and trial, we could draw near to God in faith. We need to understand this, my friends, because we are naturally prone to focus on our sin and ignore the grace of God. Perhaps this morning you find yourself drawing back. Instead of near. Perhaps there is sin that stops you from holding fast to your confession without wavering. Perhaps the sin of others 
against you are tempting you to neglect your brothers and sisters in Christ. Remaining in God's will looks like jumping off the burning roof into the arms of your Savior with full assurance of faith. When we recognize this, then, then, when we sin, when we lie, when we lust, when we lose ourselves in anger, we can still humbly and joyfully come before the Lord confessing our sin and knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is the will of God, my friends. This is why he warns us, because he desires for us to live in the goodness of this. He desires for us to receive what is promised. Because those who endure in faith receive God's promise. Finally, the author closes his exhortation with two quotations from the Old Testament. So let's read them in verse 37 through 39. He says, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere, preserve their souls. See, these passages are used to point his readers to the great hope that will make all enduring worthwhile. The author combines a quote from Isaiah 26 and from Habakkuk 2 to further correct our perspective on the events of our lives. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, brothers and sisters, you need to endure so that when you are done remaining in the will of God, you may receive what is promised for the one who promised is coming and will not delay. Meanwhile, I know that you will not shrink back and you shall live by faith. Church, those who endure in faith do not live for this day, but we live in light of that day our Savior appears. We do not shrink back to the worthless treasures of this earth, but we have faith and endure to receive the promise of salvation. This understanding allowed Paul to honestly Evaluate his life and say this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing the glory that is to be revealed for us. This whole text is an exhortation to us not to fall away from clanging onto Christ. I can't think of a most encouraging exhortation. That's why this is so encouraging. There are all sorts of things that tempt us away from our trust in Christ. Maybe some of those things are going through your mind right now. Maybe you are going through something or experiencing something that is so hard that makes it difficult for you to trust God. But the word of God for us this morning is endure in faith with confidence. You have endured in the past and God has been faithful. Endure in the faith because the one who is coming is coming again. And it, it, is, it is trust, despite what anybody tells you. It is faith which grows up a Christian. And so when you face those circumstances where you can't figure out what God is doing, trust anyway. 
Look down at the flames that tempt you to doubt and hear the voice of your father saying, jump and endure in faith and jump. This is what you will find. You will find that you will fall into the hands of a merciful, loving God. Let us pray. Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. We want to thank you, Father, that as we look back, Lord, we are able to see that you indeed placed your law in our minds and you indeed wrote them in our hearts for through temptations and suffering and trials we have endured because of you, because of your faithfulness, Lord. And so, Father, we want to thank you this morning and we want to pray, Lord, that you would help us, that you would help us, Father. We, we know that it is natural for us to see our sin, but it is supernatural for us to be able to see your grace and so, Father, we pray that you would help us do so, that you would help us see your Son, that you would help us see his sacrifice that enables us to draw near, that enables us to hold fast to our confession and enables us to encourage one another. Father, help us. Help us grow as believers. Thank you for your warning. It is but your love for us that you would warn us. It is like a father calling out to his child who is running into traffic. You are loving us, Lord, and we want to thank you for your love. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.